Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Let's Good morning. pray. Uh, this Sunday uh, commemorates Jesus turning water into wine. If you were at the early service, um, that's the uh, the gospel reading uh, for today. You heard that already. Um, and uh, this prayer, uh, this one's one of mine, but it draws heavily from uh, one of C.S. Lewis's uh, essays on miracles and God in the dock. And some, uh, some comments that I remember from one of my professors when I was at the seminary. So, Oh God, you created the vine and taught it to draw up water by its roots and with the aid of the sun to turn that water into a juice that will ferment and become wine. From Noah's time until ours, you have performed the miracle of turning water into wine. Grant that we never fail to recognize that gift as the product of you, the giver. Protect us from the superstition of the pagans who attributed this gift to some finite spirit, Bacchus or Dionysus, and from the materialism of modernity that attributes real and ultimate causality to the chemical and other material phenomena that are all that our senses can discover in it. But when Christ at Cana makes water into wine, the mask is off. The master vintner is revealed as the water in the jars blush at the service of serving its Lord. Let the miracle have its full effect so that whenever we see a vineyard or drink a glass of wine, we will remember that here works he who sat at the wedding party in Cana blessing the newlyweds with good wine. For he is their creator as well as the waters and the wines. He is also our creator as well as our Redeemer. And we pray that we will learn from the water to blush with the privilege of serving our Lord Christ and be ennobled by his Spirit working through his word so we will be what he calls us to be to his glory. Amen. So um, one of the gifts I got for Christmas, uh, it's, it's called, oh, I don't remember the right title, but basically it's drinking through the church here. <laughs> and uh, and different you know different cocktails for different saint days and stuff like that. Um, and uh, the one for today I, I particularly liked. It, it basically said, um, "This is the day that Jesus turned water into wine. The day we remember that Jesus turned water into wine." And uh, and, and so they said, "This is a good day to go to your wine collection and pull out the best bottle that you have and uncork it and." Sip and enjoy uh, this this gift, um, you know, remembering what our Lord Jesus has done for us, uh, and how He loved those uh, that bride and that groom in, in a really rather earthly and practical way. So we should drink some cheap wine first and savor the difference. Actually, ironically, because <laughs> uh, because I read ahead, because you know I have to yeah. be prepared. Um, <clears throat> when you go through. Uh, um, the seas or the, the part of Epiphany, as you get closer to uh, um, Lent, there is a, a, a saint day for Noah. Mm. And do you remember what Noah did when he got off the ark? Drink. He planted a vineyard and he drank from the vineyard and mm. he got drunk. He it. And on that one, it says, pull out a cheap bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then the comment with it was, and if you don't have a cheap bottle of wine, go buy some Mogan David. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm not uh, not endorsing uh, 
drunkenness or anything like that, but uh, um, using God's gifts respectfully and, uh, and, and gratefully is a good thing. So, uh, a couple things as we get started here. Um, I'm going to be teaching the 611 class coming up, um, starting kind of the, I think it's the last half of February. So I think that I will be down there on February 20, okay? Um, and I'm not sure what Bob is lining up for, for you guys, but I know he's working on that. Um, one of the things that I heard might be uh, is that Bill Moralia might be doing a class on, uh, on outreach. Um, so um, we'll, we'll, I'm sure as we get closer to the date, we'll, we'll hear more rumbling about that. But I'm going to be down there kind of last half of February through May 1st. Um, now, May 1st is the first Sunday of, of May this year. The second Sunday of May is Mother's Day. Mother's Day, yeah. And um, over the last few years, uh, we have often had like a, a, a breakfast or some kind of a social time on Mother's Day. So I think that after we get through that period of time, I will be back uh, and, and pick up wherever we leave off on May 15, which, you know, might still be Romans 8, honestly. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, my throat gets irritated when I wear the masks, and uh, it's, it's a weird thing. Um, uh, anyhow, so uh, in addition to that, um, my wife and I are working on a, uh, a series on the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that is going to be presented uh, through um, a, a Weekly Word, my midweek podcast thing, starting on uh, June 8th tentatively so kind of have that you know off into the future so any questions on anything before we dive into the actual topic for today let's move on what's that let's move on all right so paul here in romans 8 he's moving from a dichotomy things that are totally opposite from each other the flesh and the spirit and he's going to move from that dichotomy to a paradox, where two things that are seemingly absolutely opposite are both true at the same time. Um, and, uh, and, and so he's going to start talking about the flesh and the spirit and how these are opposite from each other. And by the time that he gets through uh, this, this conversation, the first part of um, Romans 8, uh, he's going to be talking about people who are dead, who are mortal, and yet are still alive. Uh, and that those two opposite things are, are both true at the same time. So, uh, Romans 8, 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I overheard a couple of people over here talking about translation earlier. I am going to take issue with some translation in this section. Um, and uh, the translation here kind of gives the impression of doing something. It says, those who live according to the flesh... And this is somewhat uh, understandable because um, we, we were talking about uh, last week about, you know, kind of walking 
uh, in the spirit. This you know, that this walk of life idea that you know the way that we walk is the way that we live. And so I think that that kind of got carried into this section. But if you were to actually look at what the uh, the sentence says in the original language, it's really more about a state of being. Um, it, it's a it's a participle on uh, to be. Um, those who are being in accord with the flesh. You know, th their existence is in accord with the flesh. It's, it's not just that they're doing flesh things. It's that is who they are. It, it, it's their, 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 their state of being. Um, and the same is true in the second part of the verse. Yeah, it is not that the people are living according to the Spirit, but their state of being is in accord with the Spirit. Now, that might kind of sound like I'm splitting hairs, um, but I think that there's actually a, kind of an important thing that's going on here. And it's all about how we look at life and that ever-important um, study called philosophy and uh, while I'm in, in the sermon I quote a uh, uh, you know another American uh, philosopher uh, another great uh, important American philosopher Frank Sinatra once <laughs> said do be do be do that's pretty profound <laughs> it, it it is in its own way uh, I don't think he intended it that way but uh but you can use that little phrase as the root of many earthly ideas about how things work in the world. You do it, and you are it. Do be, do be, do. This is, to some degree, um, you know, behind that axiom that uh, a, a lot of life coaches use, where they say, fake it until you make it. That, you know, your performance is what shapes you into the person that you are. And there is some truth in that, in terms of how the world works. But it isn't something that changes the essence of who you are. This is also what's at the heart of performance-based religion. That if you are going to really be a Christian, it's about what you do. So you do the things, and then you become... Is, is, is that making sense? Uh -huh. You know, I, I, I've run into this over and over again, and you will hear this sometimes where people are saying, you know, you, you don't act very Christian. The doing, then, is what they look at to say you are or are not. Okay? Paul is coming at this from a, from a different point of view. He's saying that the being is what leads to the doing. Um, but this performative type of a religion, this, this sense of, of doing leading to, to being, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a big part of how we look at the world. Um, a, a quote from Michael Middledorf here, uh, the, the dominant way of the world is that what you do leads to who you are in terms of occupations, grades, and status. In terms of how the world works, this is actually true. Paul contends that in the church, it's just the opposite. Who you are 
And in this section, he's really clear that who you are is someone who is in Christ comes first. What you do in response then follows. Um, so the revelation is that our, our being is the source of our doing and not the other way around. So if justification is a free gift, if it's something that only God does, if it's about our, our state of being righteous before God, it's about his declaration that you know you are forgiven, your sins are atoned for, then we have to start from being rather than doing. And for those of you who have been slogging through this whole thing with me all the way along, you know that one of my favorite uh, examples of this is from Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul starts out, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you are alive in Christ. It's because you are in Christ that you are alive. And I always ask the question, what do dead people do? Nothing. It's not about doing, it's about being. And then the being leads to doing. And if you get the cart before the horse, that kind of messes up our theology. It messes up our, our relationship with God, uh, I think, in, in some important ways. I, I was <clears throat> listening to radio in the car once. Some, some speaker of a rather evangelical persuasion talking about a church where you couldn't join unless you'd been born again. Yep. And I thought, that's sort of putting the cart before the horse. <laughs> unless you understand being born again as the reality of, you know, God has done his work and therefore I am part of, yeah. you know, yeah. but that's not usually the way. They but mean. they were looking to exclude somebody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know that it meant they wouldn't let you walk in the door. Right. <laughs> that that's, that's a hard way of church growth right there. Yeah. I do think that this is one of the things that, um, displays the importance of devotional habits. Um, and I think this is also one of the places where we find confusion about the importance of devotional habits. Uh, even in my own life, um, I, I can tell you that there have been times where, you know, doing devotions and doing uh, things that, that you know, being in the Word, being in prayer and stuff like that has given me the sense that I'm doing the things. You know, so that mm -hmm. can lead to a, a type of pride. But the reality is, you know, the, the more I look at this, that these devotional habits are actually reminders of our being. You know, that, that when the, we prioritize these things, it's going back to this idea of this is who I am. And so, you know, I think about in the small catechism where it talks about prayer. Um, Luther says, you know, when you get up in the morning, also says this about going to bed at night, um, you, you make the sign of the cross. Well, why? why? Why would I make the sign of the, the cross, you know, and say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? When were those words said to you? Baptism. Yeah, when you were baptized. So that's telling you something important about who you are. I am baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a state of being. It's not that this does anything. This isn't magic. You know, uh, it, it is, you know, reminding ourselves of, of, of who we are 
in Christ. You know, and, and you could make that same thing the rest of the way through. And so when Ricky, um, my, my oldest son, for those of you who don't know, his name's Rick, um, he, uh, he flirted with the idea of becoming a pastor. He was at um, the university and uh, he went from music ed to um, pre-sem back to music ed. And, uh, you, know, you know, God leads us in our our own paths and uh, he's doing his own service for God's people you know as a teacher uh, you know, and uh, you know pretty neat but uh, seminarians and pre-seminarians and well pastors too can be kind of weird um, and uh, and sometimes it's in a good way and this is one of those good ways where the guys would kind of greet one another with a phrase where they'd say remember your baptism you know, and, and you know they they would, they would see each other. Remember your baptism. And um, and uh, uh, and uh, our identity that we are alive in Christ. We live by faith, and we are saved by grace. Right. And that's what it means to be baptized. That God is doing that work in you. That your state of being has been changed because of what God has done for you. Wes. So we as Lutherans, rather than following a Sinatra philosophy, should follow a Scooby philosophy. <laughs> go ahead. Because we're Scooby-Doo. There you go. Be-Doo. <laughs> All right. Um, and this, this also goes back to what I was saying about the Ten Commandments last week. There are no imperative verbs in, in the actual Ten Commandments. They are descriptive they are defining. They're talking about your state of being. They're talking about who you are in light of God's salvation. Remember, um, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 both start with, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. What's he saying to them? I'm the God who saved you. I've claimed you. You're mine. Now this is who you are. Back there, you were slaves, you were chattel. Now, this is who you are. It, it, it's, it's about that being that then leads to the things that we do. They're not merely demanding. And we might be tempted to say, well, where would Paul get such a radical idea? Well, there's this guy named Jesus. And in John chapter 3, he's talking to a guy named Nick, Ademus. Um, he says... That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Paul is making it really clear. There is a break that takes place. There is a change um, it is an either-or type of a statement, an either-or type of a situation, and there is no third option. You know, um, it, it's a little bit of that sense of you can't be just a little bit pregnant. You know, it, it, it's, a, it's a state of being that either you are or you aren't. Um, so those who are being in accord with the flesh... They set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who are being in accord with the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the, the Spirit. 
Now, when it says that it's, we set our minds on something, it's not merely just to, to think about, but in a sense to be preoccupied with. That is something that's always there. Uh, this verb, it, it indicates, you know, actively setting one's mind upon something. Um, intensely focusing on something. Pondering about it. So when we're in the flesh, the things that we're thinking about are the things of the flesh, the things of this world, the things of our sinful nature. And when people are in the spirit, our mind is guided to, you know, think of the things of God. And it could be things that are in this world, but because the context shifts, it's completely different. It's like the water and the wine thing. You know, this is something that in in one sense, is this a observable, repeatable um, uh, event that happens when the yeast that's on the skin of the grape uh, starts to eat the sugars that are in the grape, you know, that the, the, the juice becomes wine? Is this something that we've studied? There are people who have devoted their whole lives to this. You know, when you walk down that, that part of the store, there are people who are experts about making these particular kinds of wines consistently. They know the names of the yeasts and, you know, they cultivate them and it, it, there is real, you know, science involved. But is there something more to it? Yeah. There's something behind that. And that something is that there's a creator who gives these things and who puts these things to work in this world. Who says, this is how I want this to be. And he works through what we look at and say, those are natural processes. You know, and then sometimes people just dismiss them out of hand as, you know, oh, that's just, you know, that's just the way that things work. Yeah. I'm a little confused about your use of the word when versus your use of the word constantly. Uh, and I try that to Paul's whole thing about I do not know what I do. No, this is hard stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Because sometimes, you know, I look at my own life and sometimes I feel like the way that my behavior is more aligned with my flesh. And other times, you know, I, I feel by the grace of God that it's more aligned with the spirit. Yeah. But I think that this is part of what's part of communicating what I was talking about at the first, that Paul begins with a dichotomy and he moves into the paradox. Right. Right. Yeah. That at the same yes. time, you know, I have these flesh sin things going on in me. Uh-huh. God has proclaimed me to be a saint. But those two things are really opposites. Uh-huh. And this is a paradox that as long as we live in the world, we're going to have that going on in our lives. And it's not until the second coming that it becomes resolved. Yeah. That puts it in a better perspective. You know, yeah. it, but it also makes it a little bit hard to talk about, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you're changeable things. Well, that, and it's confusing. You know, yeah. well, which are you? These things are opposites, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and when you want to emphasize the opposites, that's actually rather easy to do. Except here I am talking to a group of Christians that I know, you know, are baptized and washed in the blood of Jesus, and that's not your, you know, state of being. You know, you're not just in the flesh. You're people who have been redeemed. 
the spirit of God is in you. You know, to say that, you know, you know, you're just these rotten sinful people isn't exactly right. But it isn't exactly wrong either, is it? You know, in terms of our experience of our own lives. Simo Eustis at Decatur. Yeah. You know, and this is, you know, this is one of those places that we look to in the scriptures that says, yeah, we are indeed at the same time saints and sinners. So, uh, I, I think that what's being talked about here about mindset and uh, you know where we put uh, our thinking, it speaks to the importance of the habit of meditation. And uh, you know, meditation it has kind of this hippy dippy sound to it in our, our our culture, you know, you know, and I think it's because a lot of that's been connected to Eastern meditation, where you know the goal of Eastern meditation is to empty your mind. Um, but biblical meditation is all about filling your mind. Mindfulness is making your mind empty. Right. Isn't that an irony? Um, so one of my favorite psalms, and uh, I think one of the important places that teaches us uh, about meditation is Psalm 1. Um, psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Yeah. In my experience, in, in doing some of the more Eastern sort of meditation things, emptying your mind, it, it creates space yes. for, for, for things to come in, for, for the more important parts of meditation to then come in as you get rid of the noise of everything else. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, kind of at, at, at the heart of the, uh, the Buddhist idea of um, meditation is that you kind of get rid of all longing, all desire. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and so there, there, there is this sense that you become like this empty vessel. Um, and, and to some degree, I think, to, you know, open your mind up to receive wisdom. And there's a similarity in that, uh, um, you know, in the Psalms and in the Scriptures when it talks about meditation, it's about um, setting your mind on those places that, you know, God actually is at work in us and not the things that would lead us into our, our sin and our temptation. So when you look at Psalm 1, you know, the Spirit is at work in, in the, the, the psalmist and in us, to set our minds not on the counsels of the wicked, the way the sinners are the settled ideas of scoffers, that you know that these things of the world, but instead that our delight becomes in, in God's teaching. Uh, that word law in, in Hebrew is Torah, uh, which comes from the uh, the, the Hebrew word uh, we can translate to teach. So you know, I, I really think that this isn't just uh, like commands but it's the full wisdom and counsel of God. You know, that it, it's, it's about everything that God does for us, including his commands. Um, and, and the division part of that, you know, it, it is real. Uh, it's not just something that, um, 
it's not just something that we look at and we say, well, I've got both things going on in my life, so I just throw up my hands and it doesn't matter. It, no, we are called to wrestle against the flesh. And, uh, you know, and, and he's going to get more clear about this as we go through. Um, and to have our, our minds, or the way that we think, set on uh, God's will, God's word, and you know, what he gives us. So verse 6 continues, it says, For the mind that's set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. I translate this, For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. There are actually no verbs present in this uh, sentence. It's actually part of a bigger sentence that um, was broken off you know, to make more sense in English. Um, and that's really not unusual in Greek um, when, when the verb is actually a state of being verb. Um, and when it says that, you know, uh, the, that the mind of the flesh is death, um, it's, a, it's a noun. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, to translate it mindset um, is is a better idea of what's going on here. Uh, that the mindset, the phronema, it's related to the verb translated to set one's mind in the previous verse, phroneo. And uh, this is a, a way of thinking. It's, a, it's, it's those preconceived notions that you go through life with. You know, we all have like filters that, you know, we look at the world and, you know, and, and we, we, we have these, uh, uh, well, like a, like a, a worldview um, that, that just kind of informs uh, how we interact with things. These, these are root ideas that form how we look at life. And, and, and we may or may not always be aware of these things. Um, so if that mindset is the flesh, we might not even be aware of that until somebody makes us aware of it. I think this is one of the things that's important about preaching and teaching and, and witnessing. It makes us aware of, you know, it, it sometimes it speaks God's law into those situations that wakes us up. Yeah, Ellen? What does Torah mean in the top of the page? God's teaching Torah law? Torah is the Hebrew word um, that is usually translated law. Um, in fact, uh, in, in Jewish culture, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. Um, but the word itself, uh, it comes from the word um, yara, which means to teach. So it's really, it, it can mean specifically God's commands, but it also means this full counsel of God so that it's everything that God teaches us, which then includes the, what we would call the gospel, the good news of his salvation. Does that make sense? Good. Thanks for asking. So, you know, the, the way that we, we look at life in this world, it might flow from the flesh, which leads to death, Paul says, or by the Spirit, which leads to life and peace. Um, there's a pastor, I, I've, I've cited him in here before. Um, his name's Donovan Riley. Um, He's the kind of person that you kind of have to take with a little bit of a grain of salt. Um, 
he says some things that are rather controversial, but then other things I think he's really dead on, and uh, you know, he, he, he's got some good thoughts. Um, but sometimes he, he likes to talk about uh, the powers of this world as a death cult. And I think he's saying that for, for shock value. Um, but there is a kind of a, there is an element of this that apart from Christ, the way that this world works, in a sense, worships and glorifies death. You know, you know notice the sacrificial nature of so many of the religions of the world, um, I- including human sacrifice. You know, how often do the governments of the world turn to death as the solution to the problem? Isn't that what war does? Uh-huh. Capital punishment. Too. Capital punishment as well, yeah. You know, you can, you can see this all over the place. Look at our entertainment. How much of our entertainment revolves around, you know, violence and death? Yeah, Amy. And yet in our own personal lives and experiences, it's all about avoiding death. Yeah. I mean, that's like the worst, I mean, this is the worst thing that can happen and from a worldly standpoint as the flip side of that. You know, how much of our, you know, not to age, not to get sick, not to, not to, not to, not to, not to, to avoid pain and death at all costs. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? I almost wonder if our culture is trying to inoculate itself against death. Okay. If if you expose if you expose yourself to to death and suffering and things like that, you just become numb to it. I mean, okay, extreme example, but five years ago, or not maybe not five years ago, fifteen years ago, what was the response to a school shooting? Well, it was yeah. everywhere. Everybody was talking about it. Now, oh, there was another one. Yeah. I've been going through some personal ruminations in this. Uh, as I get older, I'm 75 now, I think more about death. I think it's important that we come to accept death. I, I, I somehow find myself sort of laughing when someone in an adventure or disaster movie says, we're all going to die. And I think, yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but recently I saw some things that made me think, maybe I'm not going to die that soon. Mm-hmm. And, and that becomes a much trickier balance to say, suppose, suppose I live longer than I really expect to. Mm-hmm. What's, what's the finances of that? You know, what happens? when I run out of money sometime. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the responsibilities? Is retirement really a time to just kick back, and, you know? Or I'm starting to think there are things I still need to do. Okay. And, and it's a tricky balance, but it's not always that, oh, death is the big bad thing. Uh, it's tricky to also see that possibility of extended life. Uh, and it's something that maybe just comes with age. But, uh, you know, it sort of struck me like. Yeah, I think the Bible is clear that death is always the enemy. 
that is a consequence of our sin, and yet in Christ, what happens when we die? Oh, yeah. We go home with Jesus, which is a good thing. Yeah. Which eventually, you know, in the same chapter, which I plan to get to before 2028, um, <laughs> it is, uh, you know, whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. But back to what Amy was saying earlier, I, I do think that this is fascinating, that we entertain ourselves with death, but then in the way that we conduct ourselves, it's everything that we can do you know, to stay young and to uh, avoid death. And, you know, culturally, you can see that uh, all over the place. That, uh, did, did I represent what you said rightly? Right? I mean, yeah. how much of our prayers are, and that, that's not wrong, but how much is it all about avoiding? I wrestle with that when I pray from the altar, you know, for people. Um, you know, because sometimes, you know, we get these prayer requests for people who have terminal diseases, and, and they're like, you know, pray that God would heal them. How about pray they'll take them quickly? <laughs> you know, I mean, or pray that he will comfort them and right. they are believers or whatever, you know, looking big picture. I think we get stuck in that. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes when I do shut-in visits, you know, people will say, I don't understand why, why God still has me here. Yeah. You know, I, I don't either. You know, but, you know, God gives you the days and we thank God for them. And uh, then they'll say, will you pray for me to die? Okay. <laughs> We actually do this all the time. Pray for our death in the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, deliver us from evil. You know, the way that we understand that is, you know, that God, we're praying that God would protect us from every evil of, you know, this body and this life, whether it's physical or spiritual, and that in the end, he would give us a blessed end. You know, nobody gets out of this world alive unless Jesus happens to show up before, you know, we die. And then, you know, we go immediately into the resurrection. At least that's what we understand from what we read in the text. The ancient Greeks had a word for this. It was eldonatos, a good death. Oh, yeah. But it was co-opted. Yeah. And it now has become euthanasia. Yeah. But I guess the real euthanasia, though, the, the real good death is death in Christ. Absolutely. One in that, you know, is died in faith. And not to get off topic or anything, but... Oh, that uh, never happens here. <laughs> uh, at, at the seminary, I, I, uh, I'm part of this committee that deals you with... speak just a little longer. Sorry. Okay. I, at the seminary, I'm part of this committee that deals with elder care and, and end-of-life sort of ministry, uh, and we're looking at, you know, volunteering and everything. But one of the things that we were talking about was hospice. Um, we wanted to, we're bringing in someone to uh, give a lecture, a presentation about hospice and hospice ministry, and, you know, what it is and what it isn't. But one of the things that I read that was interesting to me is that, um, you know, with, with the rise of this whole right to die and, you know, euthanasia, 
if somebody has a support system around them and if somebody uh, has sort of this idea that they are not alone and that you know everything is taken care of they are significantly less likely regardless of regardless of pain regardless of disease they are significantly less likely to look into or choose euthanasia than someone who doesn't because it's not a problem of pain it's a problem of hope sorry no that's good <laughs> yeah I could just add on to that although it's a different perspective that um, and I haven't double checked all the data on this or figured out how they set baseline but uh, there have been studies that show people who go into hospice, which we regard as sort of giving up. They work, they live longer than the people who decide, no, I want all the treatments and I want to fight this thing. Going into hospice has better outcomes. A lot of times, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Sam? I'm going to say, like, even, though, like, even though we worry about death, we know that um, we have hope because we know that even though what's the sad thing is the world doesn't have the world doesn't know Jesus that they have no hope. Yeah. That's like that's what I just yeah, I to say that. Yeah. Uh, I I just recently read about a study which seems incredibly cruel to me. Um but some I guess this is how we learn things sometimes. It was done with rats and they were put into uh water, um where they would tread water and they were left there uh, until they um, almost drowned and uh, and then they were pulled out and then uh, you know they so they, they established kind of a baseline of like when the rats would finally drown and then you know they would watch and when they got close to that time they would rescue them and then later they would put them back in you know after they've had time to to rest and I from what I understand the baseline was about like six hours that they could tread water and then they would give up and they would drown. The ones that they put back in would go over 19 hours. And the conclusion that they came to was not that it was about the physical exhaustion, it was about hope. Which, you know, I, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much rats experience hope. <laughs> but, uh, the hopeful rat. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. But I do think that there's something about that that says, you know, when you are surrounded by loved ones, when you do have a support system, um, when death is not the worst thing that could happen to you, you know, that makes it a little bit easier in a sense to live. You know, even in the midst of, of, of suffering. I, I, I want to be really clear about this because I think Paul is really kind of driving this idea that the way that we look at life and the way that we look at the world, these are not neutral matters. You know, they are matters of death and life. And those, those, that's, that's a big deal. Um, you know, death is the default for humanity. But life is the outcome for, um, for the person who, who has the spirit. Um, early on in, in the course, I gave you, um, uh, actually, I don't know if I gave you the whole thing or not, 
Um, but uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Live Not By Lies. And uh, um, there's a, a book, I don't, I'm reading it right now. Give, I'm going to give it a, a kind of a mixed review. There are some things that I really appreciate about it, and there are other things that I don't. Um, but Rod Dreher's book that's also called Live Not By Lies. Um, and I think it's important for us to tell the truth about the mindset or the worldview of the flesh as opposed to the worldview of the spirit. You know, the enemy is real. There are hostile forces that would lead us to death. Jesus himself speaks to the devil and he says, you know, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He also talks about him and he says, uh, you know, when the devil lies, he speaks his native tongue. You know, there are lies that lead to death. You know, and we need to be clear about that. And I think that leads us to, to ask ourselves the questions as the people of God, what do we fill our minds with? What, what are the things that are, are helping to form our worldview and the way that we think about what matters in this life? Um, to, uh, I think it's like to avoid spiritual death, which uh, our Bible almost teaches us to identify that these are, these are the leading causes of spiritual death and uh, fill our heart with the right spirit which is provided by the mm -hmm. Lord. Yeah, you know, we, so we have the Word of God that's doing its work in us, and the Spirit does His work to give us life. Um, you know, and so when we're connected to the Word and the sacraments, God is doing that work in us. But I also, you know, I, I always feel this, this, this tension you know, that sometimes I, I, I look at what we do to entertain ourselves, and I think about the messages that are there. And sometimes I wonder if we think critically about these things, you know, bring them to the word. But then there's this other extreme that says, I'm not going to deal with any of those things. I'm going to shun all of the things of this world. You know, and I'm, I'm not sure that that's always, you know, the, the right answer. Um, but where, where do we look at the flesh and say, I'm rejecting this. I'm filling with the Spirit, and the Spirit is doing His work in us. Um, I was thinking about this in particular with some of the, uh, I've already mentioned that, I guess, uh, like shows that we entertain ourselves with and the violence, and, 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 and some of the ways that some of their, they're so dark. You know, I mean, they're actually physically dark too. Have you noticed that? <laughs> That, that, you know, like if you're in a lighted room, it's actually hard to see what's on the screen. Film noir. Yeah. <laughs> in a way, yeah. Um, and it, is there a way that some of this is a reflection of the reality of life in this world? Yeah. Uh -huh. and, you know, and can that have value? Uh, I think so. But at the same time, is there goodness and truth and beauty in the world? Yeah, and that's not what we're often having portrayed to us. And these things that are of life and of the Spirit, 
how, how do we get that more in our lives in, in ways that are, are, are winsome, that, that, that grab us? You know, and I, I think that's, a, that's something that's worth thinking about and that there's going to be a, a degree of, of difference in, in how that happens in, in our lives. So, um, 8 7, um, the English Standard Version translates this uh, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. This is another one I retranslated. Uh, because the mindset of the flesh is hostility, slash enmity, toward God, it does not submit itself to the law of God, neither is it able to submit itself to the law of God. Now, I did, I did this retranslation because uh, this uh, enmity word, um, I think that that is, it is a, a really good translation of the word that's there. And I think it's an important word because we've talked about this multiple times throughout the course too. Where have we run into that word enmity before? Genesis. Yeah, you got it, Sam. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And I, I think that there is an element of that going on right here. That when Adam and Eve fell into sin, they put themselves and us in a position where they were at enmity with God. And the miracle that God performs is that he reconciles us to himself and gives us enemy or enmity toward the devil. He switches the situation. Uh-huh. So the, the word, um, it's re- related uh, to the language of uh, uh, Romans 5, verse 10, uh, which speaks of being God's enemies, that that's what we were. Um, and that is a state of hostility. And I, I've got the, the words there. Uh, enemies is ekthroi, and hostility is ekthra. You can hear the, you know, they're, they're the same root of that. And again, we're, we're confronted with the idea of no neutrality. You know, he, he's drawing some really hard lines. Um, James 4.4 4 talks about this too. Um, he, this is my translation as well. He says, unfaithful ones, do you not know that the love slash friendship of the world is enmity or hostility with God? You know, with the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to uh, God's law, nor can it. It's incapable of it. We need the Spirit to do His work in us to make us alive and in order to empower us to rejoice in in God's Word and and His truth and what He's done in His salvation for us. And Paul just kind of keeps hammering at this. He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They just do not have the power to please God. Go ahead. That passage, you know, of course, particularly, sort of, it's really referring to the devil, but it seems to be referring to snakes. Which passage? Serpents from Genesis. Oh, from Genesis, okay. Yeah. And it just struck me some years back when there was a small snake living in our compost pile. Okay. Not compost, mulch. Okay. Mulch pile. And there was a little girl next door who liked to come over and see the snake and took to calling him Snakey. And it just looked like, it just struck me because it was such a beautiful contradiction of all that. Yeah, well. Or paradoxes. But, but that is a big thing in, in, in the world, that people are, 
hesitant yeah. around reptiles in general, but yeah. snakes specifically. But here is this innocent child who really just, yep. it's another living thing, and, yep. you know, uh, I, I liked it. <laughs> yeah, you know, snakes, uh, they, uh, they're one of the ways that God blesses us too. Yeah, yeah. Eat a lot of rodents and uh, and pests and you know drowning rats. Yeah. Hopeful <laughs> drowning rats. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but here, here, there's a pivot that's about to take place here. You know, so Paul has been hammering away at this dichotomy, and uh, you know he says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He's leaving this with a really ho hopeless type of an idea, and then. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. I, I translate it, but you, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And the reason I do that is because in Greek, you don't need to have you there. You don't have to have the pronoun. Um, the verb tells you the pronoun. Um, but he includes the pronoun anyway for emphasis because he's he knows he's been hammering away this is a hopeless situation those of us who you know those who are in the flesh they cannot please god you, you know what a hopeless you know you are absolutely hosed type of a situation because so much of our life is you know it's perform it's performance based it's doobie dooby do oh but you're not capable of doing therefore you must not be able to be but now the reality is you are. You, you, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So we always need the spirit to guide us. Absolutely. Not just to guide us, but to give us life, mm -hmm. to empower us, you know, to, to deliver the, the power of the gospel to us and to give us this new life. So I really did not want to end on, um, you know, that, that last verse there uh, that says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But we make that pivot to who are you now? You are in the Spirit. And that's where we're going to head uh, next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for letting us be here today. We pray that you would bless us as we go and that you would help us to have the mindset of the Spirit as we engage with this world and that you would help us to share the hope that we have in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.